what did Hank Crawford say? Well, I was doing this record with uh, um, B.B. King. We did the uh, we did an album of um, um, a tribute to Louis Jordan. Oh. Not too many people know it, even though it won a fucking Grammy. I don't know it. Um, you don't know it? I don't it know you. it, yeah. Yeah, anyway, um, Dr. John, the rhythm section was Dr. John. Um, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, 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 is that taste good? Oh. Levine yeah, makes uh, a great coffee, too. I <laughs> Dr. John Earl Palm with one of his last sessions playing mm. drums. Mm. And um, Russell Malone on guitar. Love Russell Malone. And then yeah. I had uh, um, Ray Charles's um, original band. So I had Hank, Fathead, and uh, Marcus, Marcus Belgrave. You know? oh. Yeah, and uh, um, Hank did the uh, the charts. I worked with Hank, you know, we, we did our homework. Um, um, and, and came up with a comprehensive list of, of songs to do with B.B. Always Loved Louie Jordan. Oh, man. So he did, I think, 18 songs, and Hank did the charts out of, and uh, showed up with the charts. It was great. He did the, the horn charts. And uh, so we were recording, and it might have been the third or fourth day, and they were, we were at Oceanway Studios and had a, a booth, a really large booth. It's the mm. old um, United Recorders where one of the, all the best records of the West Coast were made. Mm. It was a large room, but a large booth, isolation booth, that the horns were comfortably in. The booth was the size of most of the little studios I worked in. Mm. And um, I just happened to look over, we were starting a session, and I was working with B.B. and he was talking to me, but I just, something struck me. <laughs> that I never heard Hank ever play um, um, a warm-up note. Not a note, though. You know? Nothing. Nothing. Zero. Yeah. So I said to B.B., excuse me, man, and I walked inside to the booth. We were about ready to go. I said to Hank, Hank, you know, like, I just noticed you never warm up at all. And he looked at me, he says, well, Stu, I know how to play. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And, and he had a, a nickel inside between the reed and the mouthpiece. I'd never seen anybody do that. Really? Just to keep the reed from um, buckling. You know, most guys take it out and they wet it. and they do it. Oh, He didn't yeah. do any of that. He just had a nickel, took the nickel out and blew. And the first note that went to tape was uh, um, the first time he had played the horn that day. Wow. You know, I know how to play. Yeah. And something struck me. Something struck me <laughs> the other day. I love that. That's great. him as a cat. Yeah. That's, wow. Something struck me the other day is really interesting is that I was working with my son in the studio, and I've been playing yeah. a lot of piano on yeah. these records and a lot of things, and I've been playing them into my iPhone, yeah, my sketches, yeah. I love the so way I don't sounds. forget them. And I realize, suddenly realize, that I, I've been a musician since I'm seven, right, and I'm 70. Yeah. I have no musical memory. None. Really? I never developed my musical memory, and let me tell you why it hit me. What, what do you mean by that? Like, you can't, I can't remember, remember changes? You can't no, remember I can melodies. remember all the changes. Oh, I can okay. The all right. I can't remember what I played. <laughs> and I can't remember what I came up with for everyone else to play. We and have the exact opposite issue. I can't remember any tune or any changes. I can remember everything. I played and I'm dead serious. <laughs> we have to make a no, record. No, no I, I can't yeah. really remember changes. I can, uh, I can, I can um, hear them. Yeah. And I can play them. Yeah. But the reason I, f I figured out why I'm that way. Yeah. Is I went from being a jazz musician, you know, being a sure. jazz player when I came up in the in the late '50s and you know early '60s, and I played jazz. You have to remember anything you played it. You know what right. I mean? And then I went immediately from that into being a producer. Mm. And I was, uh, I never walked into the studio ever with chord sheets even. Nothing. 
empty paper for everybody, no arrangements. It was always here it is, here's the line, or yeah. you or not even gave the lines. Right. Now it's someone else playing it. So every idea I ever had went directly to tape. Right. So why <laughs> so would you I, have why, to yeah, yeah, why would you have to remember? When I realized that in the studio, I was I said, This is it for me because in between I had worked a little bit as an arranger. I was a fairly yeah. decent arranger, but I hated the process That's... of the idea to the paper. By yeah. the time it got to the paper, I was bored with the idea. And I said, I'm going to leave this alone. Mm. And uh, um, so producing was a natural route for me because I could hear the result immediately. I didn't have to remember anything because if someone would ask me, you know, five seconds later, what was that line again? <laughs> Please. So the yeah. way I got it, the way I beat it in the studio is we used to run a seven and a half um, two track yeah. from the minute, I used to say, the guys used to say, from the minute we got out of our car. <laughs> yeah. Well, then that's it because it's moving slower. It picks up everything. You don't have to worry about it running out so quickly. You get like. Oh, you yeah. Know. And, and seldom did we refer to it. Right. But when I did, they were jackpot moments, particularly yeah. with the Crusaders because uh, um, those things were made, you know, we do four or five a day. They were just licks and riffs. Yeah. And they went away as quickly as they showed up. So if you didn't capture it, yeah. not so much a take, right. but the substance of a take. Right. You know, um, so that's it. So so I have no memory. So now it works for me because the iPod, the i, what's it called, the iPhone yeah. has this great little device in it where you can record everything. So there I go. Still yeah, no but memory. You know what's also cool about that? And but I want to get back to the late fifty stuff. But the cool thing about the iPhone, actually, you hit me to this because I never really. We used don't it. want to tell everybody about this because this no, I ain't <laughs> no, going. No, this, I'm not. No, no, I ain't no, going, no. This reminds I don't me. Of, keep this reminds me of, of like when when uh, people would ask me where I recorded. You know. Oh yeah. Out to yeah. California and they'd say, "Where do you record?" You know, big producers. Sure. You know, that was uh, a Glenn, big deal. Man. Glenn Johns wanted to know um, once where I recorded. I said we work at Wally Hyder's. You know, so he said, mm. "What studio?" Well, there was a little studio that was perfect, Studio 3, yeah. that was um, um, just exactly right. And they had built another one, which was this larger sort of slick studio floor, right, which right, was a right, dog. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A it's complete like the dog. new hit factory. Yeah, like, exactly. Just like a hotel. Yeah. So he said, which studio? I said, oh, Studio 4. You know? <laughs> so he was doing Rod Stewart, trying to do a funky album with Rod Stewart. And I saw him, I don't know, a couple of years later, he yeah. says, I don't know how you were able to get that studio to sound. He said, man, we were in there for a month and we couldn't get, get oh. the sound. I said, well, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know what to tell you, you know. It worked for me, man. Because if you told the guy what studio you were in, you couldn't get in. Yeah. This, yeah. Joker, this joker would block oh, it yeah. and you showed up. So I, it turned out that I never told the truth. And I think that people who do interviews, other than this interview, never tell the truth. It was a mantra. You don't yeah. want to give up any any of your um, secrets, whatever they are. Right, right, you right. So always lie. And yeah. I taught that to everybody. Uh, <laughs> it's lie. such a private lying. Is good. Well, my best example of lying, and obviously my old man taught me, you know, you guys are so tight and had very great similar person. Too. Great yeah. liars. Legendary liars. I got called to do something and I, you know, it was like a film, I think my first film score. And I was like, you know, I, I got called to do this thing. I don't think I can do it. You know, I'm a little nervous and you just see Sid lie. Just do it. You know, he was like, why would you, it's a film score. You write music. Just look at it and write. There's, only, schmuck, there's you know? only one answer. It's yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, it, and then you figure it, then you figure it out later. But you know, the studio is 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 a place where you know you develop if you're if you're 
smart. You develop a way to do yeah. what you do. It doesn't work for anybody else. Right. And so some days it doesn't work for you either. Absolutely. You know, but, uh, you know, I, I always used to ask the musicians, how am I doing? Because I never watched anybody. I've never been, I've been to two sessions in my life other than my own. I went to a session of your father's. Sure. With Rasson Nolan Kurt. Oh, it must have freaked I spent, you out. <laughs> I spent the whole day there. And I've been to, I went to Tommy LaPuma's first session with George Benson when he did Breezing. Because I wanted to see Bobby Womack and everything. Those are the only sessions I've really? ever been to. Swear to God. No. And I went to I... a Rolling Stone session at Wally Hyder when Jimmy Miller, who was a great record producer. Sure. You know who Jimmy Miller Yeah, was? I know those. I know the record. Which one? He did... Um... He did all the best Stones records, yeah. you know, and they, they fucked him over very good. You it's know? not the chunk, the sort Exile of... Exile and Main Street. Yeah. All of them. The ones with Jumper oh, Jack. All of them. He was a great, great American um, um, producer. One of the best ever. Yeah. And he had gone to England anyway. He, I knew him pretty good. And when he came to, mm. funny enough, when he came to California, they had to do some extra shit to, um, yeah. with, the, with the Stones. So he asked me where I recorded. And not only did I tell him the truth, but I gave him two days of my time at the studio right. so he could record the Stones there. Yeah. And then I came down and watched him work. And I don't want to, you know, uh, come on, but he worked exactly like I do. Yeah, know? yeah. He yeah, never yeah. stopped running. Right. And uh, um, um, there was a good feeling in the studio. But And I think actually those sessions, you know, from reading the Richards book, you know, they weren't really allowed to work in the States. They would kind of record illegally. There were actually laws back then where yeah. guys couldn't, they couldn't do... You know, no, you could, oh no, you couldn't record in the states. I did a lot of that where I recorded English bands. Yeah, they, yeah, you know, and the same thing in England. I worked in England for years, and I wasn't supposed to be recording there. I was really. Doing, oh, absolutely. at that point, that still sort of existed. Oh, well, no, it existed into the eighties. That's a long story. I had yeah. a horrible time in England, man. I had to leave. It's when I was doing simply red and all, and a lot of other things. I was really doing good in England, but I couldn't stay there wow, because you weren't that. allowed to work. The the rules were that. You were taking work away from um, an English guy. Well, you know, yeah, no had... English guy that could do the shit I could do. <laughs> I had met one. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know, so wow. so uh, anyway, I, I left and, and came home. So what are we talking about? Anything man? you want. I, I want to get into, you know, the thing that's always fascinated me about you is that you came out of big bands. You actually played yeah. in big bands. Yeah. And you really played because, you know, I didn't meet you. You know, I heard about you from my old man for almost 20 years before I met you, which right? is which to me is really strange because you know I I knew Sonny, you know Sonny Levine is Stuart Sonny is a great artist. Like I I knew Sonny for almost six or seven years before I really actually hung with you. That's right. I would answer the phone and say, "Yeah, my old man's here," and whatever. I would yeah. talk to you, but you know when I started playing. My whole thing, and you mentioned Louis Jordan earlier, I can't believe you let off with Louis Jordan. For me, my intro into knowing I wanted to be a musician, and this will maybe crack you up or maybe think, maybe make you think I'm in, insane. I heard when I was about six the song, Is You Is or Is You Ain't oh, My course, Baby. Yeah, yeah. And when I heard that, I was like, I saw it in a Tom and Jerry cartoon. They mm. actually animated it to, you know, whatever. They're chasing each other around and there's a mouse that the mouse Liz falls in love with you know this thing and I was like I heard Louis Jordan and I was like I what did I just hear? this just it yeah, changed everything for you yeah everything well I know that but, moment for, for me uh the the equivalent of moment and then we'll get back to that song because that's on the album that we do oh that would have to and yeah. Dr. John impromptu um duet I did a duet with that it's, it's a terrific record and it won a Grammy that year for the best duo 
on a record that nobody knew about. It proved right. to me that Gammys were absurd. I didn't need to be proved again. Right, one right, more right. Time. But anyway, we did that song beautifully, I might add, mm. in just an impromptu duet. But for me, the, the moment was uh, um, um, when I heard um, Rhapsody in Blue, Mm. And I heard the clarinet in Rhapsody Blue. I lost it, you know. I completely <laughs> how, old, lost how old do you think Five, you six, right. maybe. So it's just that. And, and my father was a Benny Goodman fan. And so the clarinet, I, I wanted to play the clarinet. So I started on the clarinet. Well, the clarinet, you know, led you to uh, um, Artie Shaw, you know. Right. And uh, um, Artie, Shaw, the, Artie Shaw band and the Benny Goodman band to a lesser degree. Yeah. These were the greatest white bands that ever yeah, existed. Absolutely. You know, they were swinging their asses off. I mean, they really were reinterpreting stuff that had been done, you know, by Lunsford and these yeah. other guys earlier. But they had a certain thing to them. Yeah. I mean, the Artie Shaw records were some of the greatest records They're ever. Spectacular. So I went from, I went from um, um, Rhapsody in Blue with the clarinet intro. The next record that did it for me was Artie Shaw playing Begin to Begin. Oh, it's so I good. mean, come on, I got the chills thinking about it. Yeah. And not only him, but the swing of the band yeah. was crazy. So to me, it was big bands. Yeah. It was, that was the era I came up. We're talking about, I was born in 1943, so this is like 1952, 1953. Yeah. It's before rock and roll had set yeah. in and all. Absolutely. So I was firmly established in big bands, and that's what led me to, um, to, to jazz, basically, mm. because from, from listening to these white bands, I quickly got on to Duke Ellington. Not so much Duke Ellington. Ironically, Duke Ellington came way later in my you, life. Yeah, you told yeah, me Joe, that. Joe Sample and I both admitted back in the 80s that we hadn't really exposed to Duke much because we were, that's another story, we were on to all the modern jazz guys sure. and we thought that Duke was old-fashioned, old-school. Ex- yeah. Well, we were wrong. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> the bassy I got on to and I went from, yeah. I went from um, the clarinet and then I heard the bassy band and when I heard Lester Young, I lost it. Yeah, it's... So I switched from the clarinet. When I say switch, entered the, 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 t- the tenor because Lester made it so that you know, that's why all the white guys ended up sounding like Lester, you know, because yeah. he played gentle. Yeah. He didn't have a big, big sound like Coleman Hawkins, but he swung his ass off. Yeah. So guys like Zoot Sims and Al Cohn oh. and, and Getz. Yeah. Uh, um, um, there's a great story about, about, this is a great story, about Stan Getz going up to, Al, uh, to Zoot Sims one day and saying, <laughs> Johnny Mandel told me, this is not a published story. <laughs> he goes up to uh, um, Stan Getz and he says, uh, um, Stan says to Zoot, hey, I hear there's some people out there that like the way Al Cohn plays better than me. Yeah. And Zoot says to him, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so that's, that's the world yeah, I come from. That's, and that's you a know, great that's world, my world friend. I come from. And, uh, so, so I was naturally inclined to go for big bands because at that time, this is like the late 50s or early 60s, if you weren't playing uh, um, in big bands, you were playing weddings and bar mitzvahs in New York, in other right. words. So, so I started to, uh, um, when I was 18, I got my first road gigs. I played in the, um, in the ghost band, of the Jimmy Dorsey ghost band, because Jimmy wow. Dorsey had died. My sure. first big yeah. band uh, um, gig was, was the ghost band uh, um, of, when I say ghost band, they, in other words, the band carried on without Without him. the leader, They played yeah. the book, it was a guy named Lee Castle, yeah. the trumpet player. So anyway, um, it was the ghost band of uh, um, uh, Jimmy Dorsey, and they played the book, which was a great book. Yeah. And I played tenor in that band, and then I went from that into uh, um, the ghost band, the Glenn Miller band, which had an amazing book. So you're the ghost guy. Yeah, the ghost guy. Yeah. In fact, they used to say, you know, you'd play in these little towns on a bus. You'd come yeah. on a bus, and the people, the local people at the VFW post in Peoria would say, where's Jimmy? you say... 
These is in the well. The musicians, the old. There were a lot of old timers. I was by far the youngest right. guy. A lot of these guys were road rats. Right. In fact, you know, I always wanted to. I tried to make a film called Road Rat once because the whole people, these were the last guys from that generation right. that were still on the road, man. You know, they used to use baby powder to put on their white shirts so that they were so dirty and funky that they would cover them with that. And the band uniform that you put on, you wore tuxedo pants and then the, and then the jackets, the band jackets, yeah. right? That smelled like 30 guys had died in them, you know? <laughs> There's no smell in the world that's worse than a big band jacket. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, um, uh, that's not Levine the scent. Oh my <laughs> like, that's God! Not be yeah. the... <laughs> and I, I quickly, I quickly fell out of you know because my vision of big bands came out of the movies like the Benny Goodman yeah, story. Yeah, that was great. And everybody was on the bus playing and grooving and having a great time, and they were all fall in love with the chick singing on the bus. <laughs> Bursting in with real the life, in the real life, it was second alls. And uh, um, <laughs> and, uh, and and vodka and Pernod. I, I the, my roommate taught me. He was about sixty. He All taught right, so me forty years. Forty age years gap, Yeah, the okay. salty bastard man, Walt yeah. Stewart, brilliant arranger. There's another story. Great, great guy. A horrible sort of character unless you knew him. And he would drink. He'd take a, a pint of uh, um, Pernod and a pint of vodka and keep mixing them back and forth until they became one, a combination. That's and he'd say, "That's what you want in your pocket." So that was it. And so you, between the jacket and the smell of your own breath, I lost. I the beauty, the glamour of it went away pretty quick. Wow. But, but then I went. So I played with the Glenn Miller band, and then. I started to get into the. This is the end of the big band. Era. Yeah, no, very much so. And out in New so. York in the in the very early '60s, this is like now 1961, 1962. I became like a bit of a contractor of these weekend bands, and they included like uh, Buddy Morrow Band, mm. which was a dance band, and the Billy May Band. Sure. Yeah. And they were territory bands that you could go out. You you leave New York on a um, on a Friday afternoon, play a couple of gigs. You play in Washington. Chicago, you had four, four, eight hundred mile hops each night, you know? oh. and the best players came out on that. So I started to contract these bands because I could bring younger guys into. Because the older yeah. guys not only weren't playing well, but they had all fallen apart from the, so the abuse of vodka and Oh yeah, man. And uh, um, uh, but that was it. And I went from that, and then I got involved with Les and Larry Elgard, who were a great recording band um, that were with Columbia. And they were the they were the first guys to use beautiful um, Neumanns and Telefunkens, and they were just audiophile, perfect big band records, a little gentler. And mm. I became the contractor for that. Oh. And uh, um, so through the big bands, ironically, mm. um, I got going, man, because from that uh, I met a guy named Ernie Altschuler, who was their producer. He also produced Tony Bennett and oh. a number of other people at Columbia. Yeah. And. I was starting to try to do this thing with Hugh Masekela. This is 1965. But right how now. do you get from contracting this stuff to Hugh? That's, well, that's kind of... Oh, know, no. Oh, no. Well... Um, I mean, that's a bit it, of a different, you know, different worlds, no? Or did oh, he... Oh, yeah. Well, um, uh, I, I was raised in the Bronx, and then I, um, right out of high school, I entered the Manhattan School of Music. I went to right. Manhattan School of Music in 1961. You know, I was, I was 17 and when I started... And um, uh, my story of Masekela is an amazing story, really. Uh, so anyway, I go to school, and um, well, was he? A, did he go to that school? He went to that well, school. Then, okay, yeah. In that I school that really year, and it was that. his first year. Was him, Herbie Hancock, was in the school the first year with us. Yeah. Um, 
Ron Carter, mm. Larry Willis, one of my great friends, is a great piano player. I'm writing these names down. I'm going to look them up on the internet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah well, you'll, find, you'll find them all. Yeah, yeah. We're all. We're all in school together. Do you but, say Larry Williams? Larry Willis. Willis. I was played, say, huh? Yeah, great. He played with um, yeah. Matt Adderley for years. Sure. He played. He was in original Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yeah. But he's one of the best two fisters. Quite played. an incoming class. Still a great. Yeah, all incoming. All Oof. incoming. And uh, um, but the Massacre story is amazing because yeah. a few days before I started Manhattan School of Music, a friend of mine is a drummer from the Bronx named Stu Martin, mm. um, little redhead cat, white kid. Uh, um, Hope so. <laughs> yeah, played his ass off. He was uh, he was just a great little drummer. He was a couple of years older than me, and I knew him because I was a pretty good horn player by that time. And this is before the big bands. Right, right. I was, I was seventeen, and he told me about this. Uh, um, session that was going on there was going to be a lot of guys playing and to come down to it it was at this penthouse in the in the 20s on the sixth avenue someplace and bring your horn hmm. so i get there and what it was was a party for quincy jones taking a big band to europe right? wow and in it was phil woods uh, um 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 what's his name um joe wilder jimmy nottingham hmm. um shahib shahab hmm. uh the Stu Martin playing the jump it was Quincy's big band, which yeah. was a brilliant band, and they went to Europe. So this was a party they were on their way out, you know, and Stu was playing in this band, the other Stu. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, bringing you on. So I walk into this. this he was playing drums in there? Yeah, the Stu, wow. this guy, Stu Martin, was That's playing great. drums in there. You look it up, you'll find him on the internet. <laughs> you won't find him. He's been dead a long time. He was uh -huh. a bad little junkie from the Bronx, but he could uh -huh. play. And Quincy was smart enough to have yeah. this guy. But the band, was, the room that I walked into, it was outrageous. Yeah. It was, you know... The, the whole scene at that time in 1961 in New York was one bad cutting session. Oh, yeah. It was ugly. Yeah. Ugly. And if you were smart, which is I, I found out before then, that you didn't sit in a room where you were going to get burnt because the whole thing then was, and like Sonny Stitt was the greatest exponent oh, of it. Oh, yeah. He would pick Cherokee in C sharp and count it oh, off like, you know, yeah. over here, two, 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 240 BPM mm -hmm. and burn you. And that had been the jazz tradition, you know. It was it wasn't nice, you know. No. What I mean, big and Chicago thing too. It was the history of jazz, yeah. really. Is like if you're particularly from bebop on. I think yeah. before that it wasn't that way, but everyone was out to cut you. Yeah. Not friendly. No. And if you proved you could play, you were in. But then it was just so what, you know. It wasn't yeah. like any big deal. So I was careful. I didn't. I didn't. I was never going to take my horn. And I was a kid, you know. Yeah. And I looked around, I said, no, not tonight, man. Yeah. So I went up to the roof of this little, it was a, it was on about an eighth-story pre-war building to have a joint, maybe to get a little courage, you know? Mm. So I'm out on the on the roof, I'm having this joint, and there's, I notice there's this little cat standing on the other side of the roof, and a um, little black cat with a cap on, and he got a trumpet case. And um, <laughs> it's just him and I. So I, I kind of, um, I'm only about 15 feet from him, and I... I walk over and I, I, I um, go to give him the joint. He goes, no, no, thank you. And he says that he has an accent. I said, and he's like me. He ain't playing, you know. <laughs> I said, where are you from, man? So he says, South Africa. It's 1961, August. And um, that day, that day, from morning till then, I had read, read a book called Cry the Beloved Country by mm -hmm. Alan Payton. Um, Don't was, know it. Which is, a, well, the most, the greatest book to ever come out of South Africa. Oh, It was okay. all about South Africa. Alan Payton was one of their great, great writers. This was his first big book, and it, it was extraordinary. 
So I said, I just read this book about South Africa today, man, you know, ironically. You know, I wasn't that much of a reader, but someone had turned me on to it. So um, I said, you sure you don't want to join? I said, you're from South Africa and you don't want to join? He says, no, he was very careful. Okay, so on that Saturday night, Monday, I go to school to enroll at Manhattan School of Music, and we're on the line in the cafeteria. Here's the same guy, a couple of feet in front of me, you know. I said, hey, man, he's kind of not paying attention to me too much. I think he, it turns out he was a little afraid of me because I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it dawned he on could, him. He <laughs> could pick that up pretty quickly. So he kind of gives me, a, and he was very shy. He had just come yeah. here and very careful because he's on scholarship without a yeah, passport. Yeah, you don't want to mess up. Yeah, you know, oh, without, without a passport. A passport. Oh, clearly, okay. you know, he's in exile forever. Yeah. So he's without a passport. So anyway, so he, he, this is a story people don't know that well. And he, um, he or at all, he says uh, um, very little to me. And Herbie Hancock was in the same line, man. We're all there, you know. So <laughs> that's Monday. Yeah. Oh, first week of school. My roommate was this trombone player, pretty good trombone player. And he says to me, there's some guys that are got a new apartment and they're painting their apartment. This was Friday. And you go over there, I hear they're going to have a good session. Maybe we can sit in. So you're always looking for a place to play. Because oh, that's yeah. how you learned how to play, man, yeah. you know. There were no music minus one records then, you know. And the only way you could learn is to play with guys. And it was like baptism by fire. Absolutely. But that party that I didn't play at was death by fire. In other words, death by baptism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was another level. Soul crushing. No good. So this sounded a little bit more peaceful. So we go over there. It was on 87th Street between West End and Riverside. And we knock at the door. The guy opens the door. Same guy. Uh, It was his apartment. Nice. So you meet someone in New York City three times in one week. Yeah. That night I stayed there. Yeah. And I've been, uh, we've been um, like brothers and best friends since then. That was the fall of 1961. Wow. So um, that's how I met. So I was totally involved in South African music from that moment forward. Jazz on the highest level. Because yeah. at that time in New York City, um, um, you, could, you could on any given night, you could go from the five spot where Monk was in residence, or Mingus was in residence, go over to the half note and hear uh, uh, Lee Konitz and Lenny Tristano, go up to Birdland, whoever was there, hear Miles at the Jazz Gallery, mm. Coltrane with Monk. Um, and this was, you know, in, in one night, you could hear four or five, you know, iconic, totally iconic musicians, because they weren't leaving New York. No. They all were playing around New York. So that was what was going on. And then on the weekends... I would play in big bands because oh, you go out, at yeah. the same time, you, you know, to, to make, make to make money, a living. Yeah. And I try to play jazz during the week in clubs, but there wasn't that much opportunity. So the big bands allowed you at least to blow. Right. You know, the the level of musicianship was very high. Yeah. So I had a parallel existence. You know, I, I that was what I gigged at, mm-hmm. which was a great area to um, you know to, yeah. to have lived. And that was the end of that era, and uh, I functioned like that for. Four or five years, you know, yeah. in jazz, the beginnings of African music and sure. big bands, kind of all crazy, you know. It's amazing. I mean, you know, it's like basically you're the only guy that can say that you did that. And I don't yeah, really, I, think so, I really know. couldn't think of anybody else that you know. That's why I was just 
you know, I stopped a couple minutes ago and said, you, you just matter of factly like, well, this, I'm just living this. You go from contracting sessions to, oh, and then I met you, Masakela. It's like, wow, you know, yeah, yeah. connect some dots. Yeah, I, I met Yui actually before I uh, um, um, started to uh, go out with the bands, you know. Yeah. I was 17. It was that next summer that I started to um, play in bands. I was always a little younger than everybody. I yeah, had, me too. I had to lie about my age in yeah. order to get it. A cabaret card in New York. Sure. And uh, um, and then I took on that age. You know, yeah. I became that age. But no, I, I I was grounded in in all the right stuff, and I came up at exactly the right time. Yeah. You know, people talk about um, how was it? It was extraordinary, man. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, you know I, you know, <laughs> burnt that out, and I saw the end of jazz coming as far as I could see. Well, yeah, the end of what you, well, not what you could personally do in jazz. I think you really could play, but I think in terms of doing, how long are you going to go out on weekends with the big well, band? Well, I couldn't, you know, the big band thing, just, were, just I, that burned out. Tell right? you the truth, that went away, the thrill was gone um, with Pretty the Pernod and the, and the band uniforms, you know. <laughs> And the and, World War One stories. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you know. So that was over with. I saw that pretty quick, and that yeah. was just bread and butter, and I knew yeah. that wasn't it. And uh, um, and then uh, um, um, the jazz, um, in other words, I was watching my heroes, yeah. who I would see in clubs and bars, you know, hang out with and knew, and then everyone was scuffling for, yeah. for, for a living. There's a story that really did it for me. Is, it was Manny's Music on 48th Street, a famous mm. music store. Yeah. And... Um, one day I went in there to get reeds, uh, uh, and uh, behind the counter was Kenny Durham. Oh. Who, for whoever you don't know him was one of the great trumpet players, bebop trumpet players, yeah. post-bebop, beautiful player. And he was uh, working in Manny's, you know, behind really? the counter. Oh, yeah. And and the, the, the picture that I had of him, where I got to know him a little bit as a counter man, was he was wearing the, uh, he was dressed nice with a tie and a, you know, like a jazz musician, like with a blue work shirt and uh, like a little tie and, and tweedy jacket. But everything was frayed, man. Yeah. And it wasn't frayed out of being funky. He had like, you know, the shirt was a little ripped. He just didn't have any dough. Oh, and And he wasn't, you know, um, a famous junkie. He no. just was a guy trying to make a living. And he had albums. And sure. And he was great. And he was famous. And that was it for yeah. me. That was about 1964, 65. I said... Wait a minute, this yeah. shit is over. And then the music, for me, um, personally, you know, um, uh, had lost its moment in time. Mm-hmm. I really believe that, wow. you know, things come to a close. One of the things I've learned for myself in the 50 years I've been doing this shit is that shit ends. Yeah. Hey, listen, the whole record business ended. So, mm-hmm. uh, and to me, the, the forward motion of music ended with the end of the record business because the record business, without the record Without recording, what would the 20th century of music been like? There wouldn't have been any fucking jazz. No. The whole entire history of 20th century music paralleled the development of recording. Right. I was going to write a book about it, but I already knew it, so why do I need to write a book? <laughs> Maybe because somebody else doesn't know Fuck it. Fuck man. He should listen to this interview. <laughs> if he doesn't understand that without, without recording, there wouldn't have been a Louis Armstrong. Without a Louis Armstrong, there wouldn't have been a Miles Davis. Without field recordings and folkways recordings, yeah. there wouldn't have been a Muddy Waters. Without Muddy Waters, there wouldn't have been the Rolling Stones. Sure. End of fucking story. Right. So now here we are, but that's another story. Yeah. So the development of the music paralleled recording. But, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was in this fortunate position to catch 
the end of everything. I never thought I'd end I'd catch the end of music. Mm. But as far as I'm concerned, I, I hope due respects to all of you people <laughs> who are listening to this and practicing your guitars. Good fucking Or making luck. music like myself. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Man. I, I um, really pity you because when I was coming up in the recording business, mm. they were picking, like your father, they were picking us off of trees, man. We were low-hanging fruit. Yeah. I didn't have to do anything. I could, I could, I, anything I did, someone would offer me a deal for it. Right. You know, I even tried things on where they were jokes. And, I and, get, and it still yeah, came through. Someone, yeah, because everyone was afraid that you might be the next big thing. You know? Sure, so they don't want to miss out. And no they one was ever right about that with me. <laughs> no, no, wait a minute, no. But, you know, I, I will say this, and it's funny. In the last, I you know, I felt like I caught the end of a micro moment within music where it was like I was really a studio musician. I right. really was playing on a lot of records and I really was working on a lot of records. Right. And I, and I saw... That's when you were around Marcus Miller in there. Well, right? well, actually, was Marcus actually never put me on to anything. He, he just let me stand in the room. He wasn't a guy that would teach you anything. You, you know, just learn, watch, and you'll learn. He's not like, uh, he's not a talker, you know? Yeah. Um, not like me. No. I always taught. Yeah. Well, yeah. he... he you know, he did as well, and I kind of defend him a little because, you know, whatever. He gave me my first chance to be around people that weren't in my dad's sort of sphere. Sure, sure. So my old man knew. He was like, listen, you're going to do this. I don't even know Marcus, but if that's the path you want to go, he knows the nuts and bolts of it. He knows how to make hits. He's an incredible musician. Yeah. It's not going to be your best friend, and he's not your second father, you know. Yeah. But I was 17. I went in, and I learned a lot. There you go. seems to be the age, man. It that's really is. It was, yeah. it, no, it totally is. But but what I, what I dug was I didn't think music was ending because I... I'm still stupid enough to think it isn't, and I disagree a little with you, but not that much. Uh, but I did see guys playing on things completely ending and this notion of putting a team together and recording i i saw the long slow fade on that and i just i got into technology i, I you just you yeah had well to... without without that where are you man i'll, I'll give you an idea uh, where my take on this i had a conversation one night recently at dinner with lenny walker and it was a pretty interesting point uh that i'll share with you is that you know, the, the history of music prior to the 20th century, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, or from the beginning, was always about one guy sitting in a fucking room writing something. Yeah. Whether it was Mozart, Bach, or Ernie Wilkins and uh, um, uh, Neil Hefty. They don't know, get along. They, well, <laughs> and, and even early rock and roll records um, and rhythm and blues records were written by arrangers, man. I don't want to blow the concept of people. But it well, all the New Orleans stuff, all the, you know, like, what are, like, little, not Little Richard stuff, but I'm, I'm, they're definitely, like, they're, they're written, they're pen yeah, and they're, paper. They're, 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 they're written out. The bass lines are written. The guitar parts are written. Motown stuff. Absolutely. Even as far as that? No. No, no, the arrangements were written, the right. orchestration, but that's when it started to change. Oh, so, okay. so, so the, the point is, is that, that classical music was always composed by one guy and then performed by many, you know, right. whether it was chamber music or symphony music. Okay, early pop, all big band music we're talking about was all an arranger. It was an arranger and composer's world, one guy with people performing it. End of story. Right. Then in the early 60s, it started to change. And uh, with the Beatles and groups, suddenly became four or five guys in a room and a producer. And in New York, it became uh, um, um, early rhythm and blues records. 
in Memphis it became what it was, in Muscle Shoals, all of these places, and particularly in Detroit, it was a rhythm section. It was two or three guitars in those sections, piano, bass, and drums, and um, then from those frames, they would orchestrate them. Uh -huh. So it was, it was the first time that it was a group of people coming together mm -hmm. to make music. Right, and to that's actually when the, create, to create yeah, it. as opposed and to... And Lenny and I were talking about it, and, and you know, we, neither one of us deal from a particularly ego place. It was like, well, we were, you know, saying, well, what our role was in it was that, that producers for the first time were necessary because they had to kind of um, um, take um, uh, a set of chords with a group of musicians and turn them into records. Yeah. So this was the first time that it became a group effort. And that would have been, I would say, marginally, you know, give or take a year or two, let's say the 60s, the early Likely, 60s. Yeah. Okay, so we go through all of that, and that becomes the norm, is a group of people working together sure. to, to, to make records, okay? So cut to present time, or near present time. We got one guy sitting alone in a fucking room, me. you, me. you know, we're back to Bach. So, so that's my problem. We're with back it. to Mach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's um, my problem with it, uh, Adam. Is that is that I always felt that three or four guys, you know, what would what would Miles Davis's rhythm section sound like? If there was only one guy in it. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, the story. Yeah, yeah. And, and the story. I closed it out yeah, to myself. Yeah. No, no, no. So that's when I say it ended. In other words, like. Uh, um, Sitting in a room by yourself is just, we've come full circle. And yeah. I find that... But do you think maybe maybe it's a series of circles where now, you know, and hear me out, like, it's... You mean it's, a circle jerk? Wasn't going to quite go that uh, far, Mr. Levine. Uh, no, but what I'm saying is, like, for example, I was going to say in the last six months, I've actually started working on quote-unquote major label records again for the first time in, I mean maybe 15 years, if not, actually probably about 20 years. I really, I did one set of records in the 90s, and I, I remember sitting down with my old man, and he looked at me, and he's like, you're not, you're not made out for this. You, you're, you do a thing, just do it on your own. Oh, yeah. He was like, it's not for everyone, there's not enough Maalocs on the planet to, calm, you know, like, to chill your stomach out. He's like, but, but what I was going to say is I'm back to working you know, around like labels and it's astonishing what is bred from this mentality of one guy does everything. Cause when I talk to someone at a label now, if you bring up like the fact that you're going to mix a record and the producer actually needs to be with the mix engineer, they don't know what that means. No, They're no, so pathetic. confused by it's everything. So pathetic. I mean, I don't even get mad. That's I, the I just, point I'm making. You know, yeah. it, it, to me, I, it's nothing bad. I've had my, I had great innings, man. I had oh, great, great times. Yeah. And it's all fine. But I have to be honest in looking at it, and not from a place where an elitist place or anything. It just stands to reason that this new formula is fucked. Right. You know, because the a group of people working together in tandem. Uh, um, it's got to be better. Always. You know, period. End of story. So the structure of the record companies that existed from the uh, from the 20s on through the 60s and 70s and uh, to this century, mm. as flawed as they might have been, and people take shots at the record companies. I never take shots at the record everybody, everybody played. Yeah. Everybody played, made a lot of money. Yes, There they was did. a huge collection of records. It's unbelievable. Yeah. The, the, that's why 
the record business right now is 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 horrifying because if you got Spotify and you got the entire history of recorded music, why can how do you get interested in anything new, particularly when one guy is sitting at, with with it in a room and making him by himself? Yeah. So I've pity that guy. Right. But that's what the my son is one of those guys. Yeah, listen, your son and I have been friends forever. We we came up in this. That's right. As honestly, when I met him, you know, I I was probably twenty when he was thirteen. Yeah, I thought yeah. I was meeting another twenty year old. I mean, yeah. he really he sat in the dugout for but, years. Yeah, like, he no, really, he, he's very similar to you. But we're both sitting in a room. Yeah, sitting in a room, and uh, but like he says eloquently to me. Mm. He's never known in any other way. Me neither. You so well. So that's you, not you, true. You, I really knew another way. Yeah, but, but he never did. So he goes on. I mean, it's not to say it's the end of the world. No, but it's pretty fucking close. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. and the results. That's the like, results are. You know, like people say to me, "Are there any contemporary jazz artists that you like? Which what contemporary jazz artists do you like?" Yeah. My answer is sarcastically, not on this interview, <laughs> but everywhere else. Are there any new? French Impressionist painters, if you like. <laughs> and that's in the tradition of Joel well, Dawn. Yeah. Every now and then I'll say something when I'm yeah. on. Yeah, uh, you're on a lot, my me, not remind me, it'll be like Joel had said it, you know. When the good lines show up, they come from your father. <laughs> it was one of my dearest, dearest friends. And uh, uh, I miss him every day, man. And uh, yeah. when I'm talking to myself, I'm not alone. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I totally concur. We'll talk about when you met him, actually, because that story is kind of, I don't think I've ever even really, you know, told it. I know that an incredible nickname uh, has come out of this, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you. We, we, Mascaro and I started a record company um, in 1966. We came to California, and our first album... We're independent record company. We only lost a hundred grand. Uh, <laughs> That's like and, thirty-five million yeah, in those dollars well, back then. Someone else kind of got us a line of credit. We ended up having to pay it all off. So I won't say it's someone else's money. It was yeah. our own money. Right. And we started this label called Chisa, uh, which is a South African name. And our first album was Umasakela's. Uh, it was actually his second album. The first one was for a, a real label. <laughs> And uh, um, they missed their option one day. I was reading the contract, and yeah. and we went in the studio immediately, made an album called The Emancipation of Umasakela, <laughs> and uh, where he's on the cover dressed as Abraham Lincoln in 1966. You know, that's a pretty bold yeah. Uh, yeah. time to do and, that. And it, and it uh, um, it was my first album, and it, it remains one of my best. Is that your first album as a producer? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow, and we made it in L.A. and um, it got on quite a, right away in L.A. where he had a following from this album he had made, the other album he had made, his real first album, and it caught fire here. And we we were distributing it through independent distributors and all. So um, we decided we had to get out on the road and and show up in some places where it might have gotten played. And um, we came to Philly with a promotion man. We came into Philadelphia, and. Um, We'd been to Chicago and Detroit, and it was not only cold, beyond the weather, was, the weather in winter was warm compared to the reception. Oh, you know, it was yeah. It was a days of really mean guys at radio, R&B guys that were cold, and all they were looking for was a taste. Mm -hmm. And uh, it didn't matter what your music was, they loved it as long as it was attached to a 50 or a 100. 
So I was already, by the time I got to Philly, I'd been on the road about three or four days. I already said, I can't do this, you know, because yeah. I couldn't deal with the reality as opposed to making the music. I couldn't deal with the reality of the, the reception for it, even if it was good, was always, you know, um, part of some kind of payola. Straight and and just think, it was only uphill from there for oh, the yeah, next exactly. year. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I knew by the time I got to Philly that this wasn't for me. Yeah. So we come into Philadelphia. It was a morning, and uh, um, and the local promotion guy, it's a great guy, Richie Salvador. He says, "I want to take you by WHAT, which was the the great station in uh, um, uh, in Philly." And who was the who was the guy Sid uh, Sid Mark Sid Mark did the evening show yeah. the nighttime show Sinatra, this was yeah. this was a um, Ed Bradley was on the station Ed as well. Bradley this was a flagship jazz station in America you know mm-hmm. so I'd never like this is the third um, radio station I've been into in my life and we come in in the morning and we we go into this control room and there's this guy this big guy mm-hmm. sitting there white guy rambling some really <laughs> funny shit. Talking to Master Kale and I come in with our album. The promotion guy hands the album to um, Joel Dorn, yeah. and um, he's going on. It's like it's like the I don't know ten o'clock in the morning or eleven o'clock. He in the used morning. to make up the weather report, no matter what. Whatever the, the weather whatever was, it was, he'd say the opposite. He didn't. He had care. housewives, I think, that were listening yeah. to him. But hip, funny guy, you know, right away. And we're there about two minutes, and he's talking. And we, we, the guy hands him this album with Abraham Lincoln on the cover. And uh, and I had a card because we had just started in business. I had you in business? You have a business card, man. Absolutely. So I had a card and my name on it. And it said, um, Stuart Levine, President, Chisa Records. And I hand, they hand it to him. And uh, he's talking and he says, without missing a beat, he says, well, here we are. We're sitting here this morning with you, Masakela, and President Levine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and, uh, and he says, uh, "How are things, President?" So, <laughs> you know, I don't miss a beat, man. I get well. It's really hard, man. You know, like we got the war going on, and and he and I go into this mad conversation. Yeah. So we met on the and radio. it basically didn't stop for forty five years. We met on the radio yeah. with with shtick and funny shit. And we were looking at each other, and it was deadpan. We were throwing line after line. We had met, each of us had met our match. Yeah. And um, we became um, extraordinarily close friends, yeah. man. He broke our record out of Philly, yeah. and Yui came back and played the showboat, and uh, became, um, um, he broke us in the East. And um, I was one of the people who talked to him, talked him into leaving yeah. radio and uh, um, becoming a producer, you know. Um, um, so we used you, to you mentioned Sonny Stitt earlier. The first record he did was a record with Sonny Stitt for Atlantic. And the only problem was is that Sonny had done the same record two, <laughs> two weeks before. I think it's called Deuces Wild. He just, you know, he, he figured out a way to get this kid to, you know, get him a check. And, you know, Atlantic said, well, let's see what you got. You know, like, do a, do a record. And he got Sonny Stitt to do the same record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was... He was uh, um, he was a great record producer, you know. He was a great record producer, and and he and I worked from in more or less entirely different positions in making records. Totally you know? different. Totally different, and uh, um, and uh, you know the the his taste was even more varied at that time than mine was. In fact, uh, I, I wish he was around because I would thank him 
for Gene Ammons and gospel music, both oh, yeah. both things I had avoided, and I uh, um, until after he died, yeah. and uh, was I wrong, man? You know? Yeah. Well, but there you go. That's all right. I, that's you, how I met him. And shortly after that, actually on our on our way from uh, um, Philadelphia to Washington, when I got to Washington, which was the next day, yeah. uh, um, it was too severe for me yeah. with the the because it was an R and B kind of world then. Yeah. And I said this is it we got to get out of here and we went back to LA and sold our company to Universal who were just starting out oh, wow yeah that, that promotion trip uh, other than meeting Joel to me was a disaster I decided I couldn't make the music and sell it right uh, so uh, we got out and Universal bought our label and uh, um, our dream of making African the idea at that time was to make African crossover you know this combination of African jazz and R&B, mm. and we had other artists, you know, right. and other things we wanted to do, and uh, um, Universal bought us and started Uni Records, and a year later we had Grazing in the Grass, which was a huge, mm. huge hit, and a year after that we f we got out of that deal because we hated them. Wasn't that, that was a number, wasn't that number, number one? number one record, yeah, yeah. and uh, twice, it was both. Uh, 67 or 68? 68. Yeah, it was number one. I, remember, yeah. I just read a thing about that actually a couple days yeah, ago. Yeah, it was huge, and then we had a dispute with them, and uh, we, we, we were, you know, it was like 1968. We were, uh, you know, as radical as you can be. We were hugely involved in the civil rights movement. Huey was obviously from uh, um, oh. South Africa, so the anti-apartheid movement was wasn't even alive here. We had yeah. our own battles in this country. Yeah. No one, no one, we didn't even get to anti-apartheid was dealing with uh, uh, you know what was going on here and our friends were you know Rap Brown and uh, um, Huey, Huey Newton yeah. Huey, Huey what? Huey, um, Stokely Carmichael yeah. and uh, um, we were into that and the, our music spoke um, of um, the time you know yeah. and so it was a pretty interesting time and then we went from that to um, we made a distribution deal with Motown Really? Um, yeah, from oh, 1970 to 1972, Chisa was distributed by Motown, our label. And um, Motown at that point's already in L.A. Or, no, or no, they, they moved. It was out of Detroit. They oh, moved still. Shortly okay. after, yeah. and we had the Crusaders. That was where the Crusaders began. And we had this beautiful um, South African singer named Let Mbulu, mm. and a couple of other things. And uh, uh, we went to Motown. It was their only distribution deal they ever made. Really? And they really, they really admired what we were up to. Yeah. Uh, and it was a, it was a. Um, you can't beat them, join them. I mean, they didn't have anything like that. So. No, <clears throat> they tried their best, but they yeah. they couldn't figure out how to market it. But it was a very, very um, um, friendly deal. That's cool. And it, it was great because I got to go to Detroit one week a month, and I was uh, um, I spent a lot of time around. Um, that hit-making machine, I learned yeah. how they mastered all their records and quality control, and I also hung out a lot with Norman Whitfield, oh, yeah. um, who I think was probably the pound for pound, and he had a lot of pounds, yeah. was the, the greatest of, of all those people. Mm. And um, so that was a good period. Oh, that's, my old man would tell me he was tight with um, uh, Lamont Dozier. Well, I was tight with Lamont. Right. Dozier. Well, but it, so did you introduce them? or, or Joel? Yeah, because he was... Oh, yeah, no, I produced was, Lamont. Um, I produced Lamont's solo album. I introduced him, yeah. I met Lamont I loved a couple of years later. And it was ironically, you should mention that, because Lamont was in Detroit, and this record we had made with this South African girl, Let Mbulu, mm. that's an amazing story. 
mm. giving you all the good ones. Well, uh, Bulu, we had made this fantastic album that's worth getting. It's it's kind of a collectible. A lot of people really worship it, and it was out and they played in, in Detroit a lot because you know it was Motown. Sure. And um, I got a call that Lamont Dozier, I had become an independent producer at that point. I had produced Minnie Ripperton and uh, um, a couple of other things. I was just getting rolling, having sold my labels. Mm. And I got a call that Lamont Dozier wanted me to produce him. He was on mm. Warner Brothers, and I was, my God, my favorite record yeah. producer. Yeah. Producer, so, so I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And I drove up to, he had a house in the hills. I drove up to the, meet him for lunch at his house. And um, I got out of the car, <clears throat> and there was this Let the Mbulu record, this particular cut. Mm. On, it was a vinyl, and... Uh, um, he was blasting it, and I walked into his living room, and there was this record playing, and he was nodded out, mm. sitting in the couch, and listening to it. So I lifted the the arm up, and I said, "So that's why you want me, huh?" <laughs> it's a true story. That's and great. and he said, he looks up, he says, "We didn't we didn't know each other." He yeah. looked up at me, he says, "Yeah, man, I love this shit." He says, he says, uh, um, "I want to make me an African American record." Yeah. First time I ever heard, heard the word African American. Yeah. I said, um, uh, I want to make me an African-American record. So I said, <clears throat> you got anything? And he got up and he walked over to the piano and he started to play these changes. And when, Mo when Lamont Dozier played with, a, with a, um, a, a little bass line in the left hand and three-note chord on the right hand and his foot tapping and singing some shit, you heard the entire sound of yeah. Motown, right. just with him at the piano. And he was playing this thing that uh, ended up being called um, Going Back to My Roots, which was mm. a classic record. Yeah, yeah. And we made that. And I think it's the best uh, um, big hybrid of African and American music ever. And we made this amazing... No, no, no. Paul, Paul Simon's Graceland. Don't... <laughs> No, I love Paul Simon's yeah. Graceland. <laughs> I, I, thought was I just think it's... But it's funny. There are so many examples of what leads to like that kind of thought. But I remember as a kid... People sort of saying, "Oh wow, that's never been done," and you know, I'm just sitting oh, there yeah, going, "Are you kidding you know, me?" Feel, you know, yeah, exactly. Uh, world music, preaching to no, the Mormon. No, this record, this choir. record, then it got covered, and it's it's a it's a classic. It was an eight minute version of yeah. a thing called "Go Back to My Roots," and then you you should hear that if you haven't heard it. It's no, wild. I know it, but people should. Yeah, yeah, and that was it. So I did Lamont then, and uh, Maskella helped on that. Yeah, and. Uh, um, now, did you use any of the? Was it done in L.A. or it was done it, in L.A.? So no, no Motown oh, no, guys. No, oh, no, well, yes and no. Really? We did it in L.A., but it was the greatest rhythm section at that time. James Gatson playing drums, oh. and that was my first encounter with James Gatson. Actually, second, I had done Randy Crawford. I think he he's became my, my favorite drummer. He's my favorite drummer, yeah, yeah. I, man. And he played on that record, and Wilton Felder played bass, who was my favorite bass player, mm. and Joe Sample played um, piano. And uh, we had five guitar players on that record. We had a young kid named uh, um, um, uh, Red Parker Jr. Ah. Yeah. We had Wawa Watson. We had, um, um, oh my God, there were five different guys. And we had percussionists, and it was wild. Alone, there are five different guys. Just yeah. the two of them. Yeah. That's pretty heavy yeah. to do all. And uh, we did that. We, that's, a, that's a great album. And that, that to me, was high point of... Um, uh, um, one of the high points of, of making records. And it was right on the eve of, uh, of disco taking over. It would yeah. have been like early 1970, late 1975, 1976. 
and it got overlooked, and that's when I decided, fuck it, Rhythm and Blues was finished, mm. and, and uh, um, uh, there was no point, because it was club records, it was not club, it was what they called, Bee Gees, and sure. Funk, and uh, not Funk, yeah. the Bee Gees, and then Giorgio Moroder right after that, who made good records. Great records, yeah. but a different thing. It's, yeah, so it, I decided you know. I was, I had to take a break from R&B, which I had been you know, on the fringes of for 10 years. Yeah. And I, I stopped doing that and got into making um, rock and roll records, country rock and roll records. I went down to Capricorn Records in the South and Phil Walden owned Capricorn. They had the Allman Brothers. Sure. And I, I did the Allman Brothers and did uh, the, the remake when they, they had a little band called Sea Level which mm. was the Allman Brothers band without Greg Allman. Mm. I did the Marshall Tucker band. Sure, yeah. I did yeah. a bunch of albums with them, and I did a group called, I found a group called the Dixie Dregs. And oh, yeah, them. Steve Morrison. Yeah, that's still I made great. their debut album. Really? Yeah, I never yeah. knew that. I wouldn't even yeah. think of you yeah. in an I, instant. I, I, I hung out, like I, I hid out in, in Macon uh, and for about two years because Phil Walden, who owned Make, uh, Capricorn, Capricorn became a good friend, and he, he really liked uh, my work. I never felt like I knew what I was doing down there, really, that I was the, <clears throat> I didn't really get the music that much, but I got the musicians, and I, I did a reasonable, you know, everyone thinks I did good. I never really related to it, but sometimes you make records that are um, not where you live, you know, yeah. you're just visiting that place. And other, wow, and, and, I gotta say, I'm blown away. I would never think for a minute, I mean, I know you for a million years now, at least in my life. I never knew you spent any time doing yeah, any stuff like that. Yeah, I spent over like two that. years down there. I did four albums with the Marshall Tucker Band, three or four with Sea Level, which were really good. They were like jazz, rock and roll fusion. Right. At the time, so there were a lot the, of jazz guys were trying to make rock records. And yeah. They put a backbeat on, on Dexter Gordon. They thought they had yeah, something. Yeah. And I saw it the other way around. I liked. I always liked guys who were playing over their heads. Right. Now, to me, pop musicians... They're playing over their heads. So I, I was into it at that time. These guys were trying to make mm. <clears throat> sort of jazz, and we made this nice hybrid. But the Marshall Tucker was straight out. Um, Just that straight, yeah. Kick-ass yeah. uh, um, um, Southern rock and roll. And, and they liked me. We made we made some wow. good records. But along the way, um, I, I discovered this group, um, the Dixie Dregs, yeah. playing in a club. And I thought they were outrageous. So. Yeah. I signed, I I had Phil sign them. We made their first album was called Free Fall, mm -hmm. and um, they went on. He had a pretty interesting career. Oh yeah, yeah. no yeah. for sure. Wow, yeah, that, that was a little that was a little stop out of um, um, and that took me to around 1980, I mean, you know, while you're making southern rock records and and you know sort of fusiony records, he he was making a sleep at the wheel, right? And like you know, a Kate, a Kate Smith record and yeah. then the Nevels and I used the, to call it Hate Smith. <laughs> well, yeah. a, a duet between Doctor John and Kate Smith is some out. Well, yeah, that's was amazing, yeah. Joel. But the parallels there, you know, not no, just on us. Eighty one was it. a year when where you, you know you got to work, you know, and yeah. if you want to work, and then came eighty one. I just said no more, and I. I moved to upstate New York, and it's yeah. interesting. We stayed there for three years. Sonny was two, right. and we had a beautiful little house way up in the mountains. And mm -hmm. I, uh, I realized that for at least 15, well, for 15 years, I hadn't been listening to anybody's music. Right. I didn't have time. I was making it, making well, it. That's making the problem it. with making records. You, you get sort of... 
And I and I and I my inspiration was gone, but I had a great collection, so I I moved up there and I started to I was burnt out, but I started to listen to music, uh, you know, a half hour a day. I built a little room to listen to. Pretty soon I was listening to music four hours a day, six hours a day. And then I had a Fender Rhodes piano. I started to bang around a little bit. And after about a year of that, mm. I said, I think, um, I, think I can um, go back into the studio. Yeah. And that was a, a great time off. And then I worked with Sly after that. And then I did a record with Joe Cocker that became this huge oh, record of Where We Belong. Oscar know? winning? Or, yeah, yeah, won Oscar it's, and Grammys. It's a great record. And then I did an album with Womack and Womack. Um, and that was the turning point for me. They were the, the, it was Bobby Womack's brother, um, Cecil, and yeah. his wife, Linda. That, that's um, huge in England. Womack is like a it was, deity it in, was, in it England. It was major. And, and we made that record in L.A. and Gatson. And, yeah. Uh, um, and I was still living in New York, and I that when I did that record, I said, I think I I, I think I'm ready to come back now. And uh, um, I love how I love how winning an Oscar, working with Sly Stone, and then working well. Now I'm back. It's yeah. Like, well, you know, I would go I back mean, to the to the country, the upstate, and then I would come out to L.A. and make them. I had drug problems then too, and alcohol, yeah. and I had decided I had to stop everything. So I was hanging hanging out in the. And I found myself, you know. Well, and then I found when I come to the studio, it was starting to return. Uh, so the Womack and Womack was, like you say, huge yeah. in England. Yeah. It was a record of the year, critically and in, in sales-wise, it was massive. Yeah. So I went over to England with them to help them um, put their first show together. Right. And when I got to that show, it was at the Hammersmith Odeon. Oh, wow. Um, it was loaded with every, every A&R guy in, in London was there. And they all were hitting on me. Well, it's you the best meeting you could have. Well, yeah, yeah, you got to come here and work with our with our young kids. That was 1984. You got to work with our bands. They yeah. were trying to do this blue eyed soul thing, so that was it. Um, yeah, well, I, that's I the birth England. of Northern Soul, man. That's you caught the per yeah. talk about the perfect window. Yeah, man. and 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 they, they liked my stuff there and. Uh, uh, I didn't have to move an inch to the left or right. When I was in England, I didn't have to move away from where I really naturally lived. <laughs> it was probably even more in the center. It yeah. was, that was it. Yeah. Everyone thought what I was um, up to was cool. Yeah. Um, I have a suggestion. What's the suggestion? Let's eat something. What, what like just anything? No, uh, inside. <laughs> a my badger? Wife, my, wife is, my wife is making um, um, badger salad. My favorite. Uh, Canadian you're badger? Veg you're not a vegetarian, are you? Not anymore. Okay, yeah. let's do that. All right.